that says quite a few things uh, about uh, human potential um, and, and about humanity in general. Um, first of all, that we have such great potential that, that, that God has to say, whoa, which really surprises me that the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit would be surprised and almost afraid of the potential. But it makes perfect sense, since we're creating the image of God, that we would have this great potential. Yeah. But the potential we have for good is equal to the potential we have for evil, so to speak. And so um, he needs to stop us. And notice that he didn't stop us with um, uh, legions of angels or anything like that. He attacked our words. Oh, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother Bible class. Words, the power of words. And we are created by words, through words. We're people of words. It's how we interact with each other, and we are to take God at his word. It's really a phenomenal thing because then you get to John chapter 1, and we hear that the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word was a person, Jesus. It's just is phenomenal. But I, when I think about the Tower of Babel situation and my own situation as a father, I realize what great potential more than I knew I had for love, but also the potential I have for evil is bone-chilling. That it was not the great tyrants of our history that carried out all the genocides. It was regular people like you and me. My potential to, to do evil is great. Nobody, nobody messes up a child like a parent. Yeah. You know, I got in college, I did chapel a couple weeks ago in college, and I said, next time you go home, forgive your parents. And I said, don't go up there and say, I forgive you, Mom and Dad, that'd be weird. But I said, I'm betting they carry a lot of guilt for the things left undone and the things they said and, and whatever. And so this is how you do it, unprompted, say, I love you. Right? And it will wash over them like an absolution. Yeah. So the point of the vocation then when this is that is that how can I have this love that seems almost unlimited when I am a limited and deeply flawed person? But then I realize it's God's love through me, and so maybe it really is infinite. Maybe it really is perfect, right? If it's really God loving my children and he's doing it through me, that it's my love, it's God's love and not really my love. It becomes my love too, but it's God's love, and so it has great potential. But I also have great potential for evil. So this just seems very profound to me, right? That when I look at my children, or I look at my wife, or I look at my students, or I look at my neighbor, that I'm in a completely different calling and situation than maybe I originally thought. Vocation, this idea kind of changes everything. So let's talk about vocation just proper right now. Many of you already know this, but let's just, let's just go through it. Vocation means calling. We, it's the same where we get the word voice from, right? So vocation is God calls a Christian to a neighbor relationship. So there's always somebody who's being called. There is the caller, but there's always a neighbor, right? So in our kind of uh, um, uh, very individualistic society, we tend to stop at neighbor. Like a lot of people, and people, uh, uh, sociologists have done studies on this, religious or not, most people believe that they are called to do something. 
usually about their job or maybe I was called to be in this relationship or whatever. But they tend to stop there. I am called to do this. Like this is my talent. This is my place in the world. But, but for vocation, I think it's better to think about, it's really about the neighbor that I'm called always to a neighbor relationship. So I ask the question, I'm not just father, I'm father to somebody. I'm not just professor, I'm professor to somebody. And really the emphasis is on the neighbor and not so much me. Um, let's just talk justification for a second because we gotta, we gotta always talk justification. That's important. Um, when I use the word justification, what I mean is, um, am I right with God or not? So in most languages, righteousness and justification are actually the same word. Right? And, and the way I normally use the word justification in my regular day life actually helps me understand the theological understanding of justification. Uh, I use this, I think, example in the book. I use it all the time because uh, I think it's, it's easy to understand. If I come home from work one day, driving be, uh, and pulling behind my vehicle, a $50,000 speedboat, and I come up to my driveway, and my wife comes out, and she's going to, you know, you know, maybe a swear word or two, but she's going to say, what in the world did you do? And I'm left in a situation where I need to justify my actions. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to make them just. I'm trying to make them right. I'm trying to be righteous. It's all I'm trying to do. And, um, by the way, there's nothing I can do to make that righteous. Even if I won the lottery, I still should have talked to her about this, right? And isn't that exactly how I am with my Father in Heaven, who, who demanded perfection, that when I'm trying to make excuses, or I'm trying to say, but I'm better than anybody else, or I'm whatever, that I'm trying to justify my existence, I'm trying to be right, I'm trying to be righteous before God. And I would go so far as to say that we are homo justificans, which is a fancy way to say we are the types of beings that seek justification. Like the squirrels don't go around and saying, you know, do I look good in this outfit or not? Or I gathered more nuts than you. That's something we human beings do when we compare each other to, uh, to, to other people. We're always trying to justify our existence. Nobody wakes up and says, I hope that I'm devalued or I hope that I'm wrong today. It's why I will still, after all these years, make sure that my wife knows that I do more chores around the house than she does. Um, just think about how almost every moment of every day, without you knowing, you're trying to justify yourself. And here's the tragedy of it. It's a double tragedy. One is you cannot do that before God by law. Yeah, look at what I did, God. The other tragedy is you don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to. You can't and you don't have to. And so the whole idea is that Jesus is righteous in your place. So God looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. He sees the righteous robe of Christ. And he's really more concerned with you, loving neighbor, than your relationship. Like, your relationship with him is good. Nothing's going to change that. Why are you worried about that? God, I think God is bored with that. He said, I've already made you righteous in Christ. I'm more concerned about you going out into the world. But we tend to think individualistically, right? We tend to think about our virtues. I'm patient. I am faithful, 
she is this, he is this, or whatever. And it ends up being virtue for the sake of virtue. Where I think the better way to think about it is through the lens of vocation and love. If the highest virtue is love, that means it's to an object, to a person, right? And so I'm not patient so that I can be patient. I'm patient for somebody. I'm courageous for somebody. I'm hardworking for somebody, right? And we may see, well, that seems to be so much about other people, what about me? But in reality, it's kind of freeing, isn't it? I'm not really concerned, am I courageous, am I virtuous, am I, you know, name everything. But I'm actually for somebody else, and I can lose myself in the love of somebody else and the craft of my job, and I don't get worked up. Am I good with God or the world? The answer is, yeah, because of Christ, so don't worry about it anymore, right? Okay, so uh, this then really changes, I think, our ethics. So think about ethics either as um, a vertical thing or a horizontal thing. So if I'm in a vertical relationship with God, an ethical vertical relationship with God, I'm always trying to make him happy, right? So this, uh, um, um, think about Martin Luther, right? The, the great reformer, who is, uh, when he enters the monastery, he's really thinking about how can I be right with God? I want to have a clear conscience. So um, he's going to do, well, how's the easy, what's, the, what's the easiest path to that? Not the easiest, but the, the straight line path to that. Give up my whole life and go to the monastery. Um, go and be an Augustinian friar, where every moment of every day, I am going to be doing God's work. And then God will love me. Right? And so he goes 100 miles per hour into that lifestyle. But then he can never quite get there because there's always more he could do. There's always the sinful thoughts that are there. And then God becomes kind of a tyrant to him. God is this, this, this not loving father, but saying, um, dangling righteousness above him. And, and Luther jumps, and just as he jumps, he goes, ah, not yet, not yet, not yet. And then Luther's in this conundrum where he follows all the rules, but he wants to follow the rules in order to gain God's love. So his good deeds don't really count because it's not loving and unselfish anymore because he's doing it for himself. You see the problem? And so that doesn't count, and he's never quite going to be right with God. He finally realizes, of course, that the righteousness comes apart from the law, Romans chapter 1 and 3. Romans chapter 3 says there is a law that's apart from the law, and it is a gift. By the way, I, I wasn't planning on this, but let me just talk about that for a second. So uh, most of you probably memorized or at least are familiar with Romans chapter 6.23 for the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And I, don't, I think Paul used the word wage in one part of that sentence and gift on purpose. If you think that you need to be right with God through following laws... That's not a relationship of love anymore. That's a business agreement you are in with God. It's a quid pro quo relationship. It's a wage agreement. I do something and I get paid the proper wages. This is 
trying to be righteous by law. I do something according to the law and I get paid the proper wages. This is no longer love or a gift system. This is a wage system. It'd be kind of like this. Uh, you bring your newborn home from the hospital and, you know, the kid's in the little car seat, you know, and you put the, put the car seat down on your, on your front porch and you lean over and you go, here's the deal how it works in this family. Um, you follow the rules and then we reward you with, with love. We're going to uh, clothe you and feed you and protect you and maybe give you an education. Knock when you're ready. Right? That's not love. That is a quid pro quo relationship. Side note, God does demand things that we cannot do to us, but then he provides them in Jesus Christ, right? So he actually does say to the, to the child, be perfect, but then he provides that for Jesus Christ. But back to that baby, that is not a love relationship, it's not a family relationship, it's not a gift relationship, it's a wage relationship. And Paul's playing with that until he gets to Romans chapter 6, and he says, the wages of sin, if you want to be a part of that system... <laughs> The wages of sin, you get paid death, wage system. But then he says, but the different system, the righteousness by faith system, is a gift system. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Not a wage system, not a gift system. So, what am I supposed to do if my good deeds aren't supposed to make God happy anymore? What am I supposed to do with all my time and my energy? When I'm no longer in this ethical vertical relationship. Well, now they are free to be in a horizontal ethical relationship, and that is with my neighbor. So um, the freeing of me trying to please God literally leaves the question of what am I supposed to do with my time and my energy, right? And I have a choice. Can I be all about myself, or I'm going to be curved outward towards other people? And this is why I think it really is true freedom. Now let's talk about freedom for a second because um, we're in a political season right now, and uh, so we're going to use the word freedom every other sentence. And um, sometimes uh, Christians will use uh, Bible passages that, that use the word freedom in it for their political cause. And I think we need to be very careful with that. Because the freedom of the Bible is not exactly the same as freedom... Um, of the Republican or Democratic parties. Um, it's not to say that we are created in the image of God or made for freedom, and I can see that being played out in the Bible, but the freedom, especially of St. Paul in Galatians, is not the same as my freedom to be like a libertarian or um, a, a political freedom or whatever. And, and I think here's the main difference. So we tend to think about our freedom to, to be autonomous in some way, right? So that I can make decisions for myself. We, we understand that there needs to be a government. Usually most people believe that there needs to be a government and I certainly give some freedoms for the law and order. There's a give and take, whatever. But generally freedom is I can make my decisions for myself. I can be autonomous. But when we talk about freedom in the Pauline, St. Paul way, what he's talking about is either you're a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. There ain't no in-between. So, in fact, I'm 100% sinner and 100% saint at the same time. I'm a sinner saint. And I realize the math doesn't work out that 
when I say you're 100% sinner all of the time and 100% saint all the time. I understand the math work doesn't work out, but as we said yesterday, sure explains your life. I know it explains my life. That one moment I can be a delight and unselfish and the ne next moment the, the exact opposite with my great human potential, right? So St. Paul is saying um, you're addicted to sin. Like you can't, you can't not sin. And quite frankly, if you could personally not sin, why haven't you already gone down that path yet? Like, sin's never really worked out for you, has it? Right? If you had the ability to do this, right? So I think the addiction metaphor is, is, is helpful. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's helpful that I cannot help but sin. So if I'm going to be free from sin, I don't think I can explain it as I just do whatever I want. I'm autonomous because I'm an addict to sin. So uh, let's say something pretty graphic. Um, let's say that you know you're you got a nephew who's an heroin addict, and you have an intervention, and you say to him, "Stop doing this. <laughs> this is bad." And he comes back and he says, "It's my body. It's my choice. Don't 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 uh, encroach upon my freedom." And you go, "Dude, this is not freedom." Your addiction is not freedom, and, and you calling it freedom doesn't make it any, any less a prison. And how awful, it's, it's a prison of your own making. So if I, if I say I, I, I have the freedom to do what I want, when I want, however I want, but I'm a sinner, it's like the addict saying, it's my body, it's my choice. I don't think so, right? I don't think so. So what then truly is freedom? Well, it's actually slavery, just not slavery to sin, but slavery to righteousness. And this is what St. Paul says. Um, you are a slave to righteousness. And we don't like that term for a lot of different reasons, but, but the idea that I'm a slave to righteousness seems that I don't have my own free will and I don't have my freedom. But if you're not a sinner, which is by definition a prison to your sinful nature, you don't have any other choice. You're righteous. <laughs> right? If you're not a prisoner to sin, then you are righteous. And righteousness is love. Always. And so the freedom of the gospel is that I'm free from pleasing God, but I'm also free to be what I was always intended to be, and that is a loving, righteous person. I'm free to be a slave to righteousness. Right? I think that's the paradox. Um, and yet, it's really beautiful, isn't it? And, and you have this in your own life. Um, there are times when you keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Like, I know what not to say to my wife. That's going to set her off. Um, I'm getting sort of better. But why do I still say that once in a while? Oh, because I want that high of being righteous. Even though I know the hangover gets worse and worse and the high gets lower and lower. I mean, the addiction metaphor is really quite powerful when you think about it in sin. Right? Um, so, and yet, there are times when I delight in doing something for her. I delight in doing something positive for her. And I wouldn't describe that as being in a prison or a slave for one second at all. How, why is that? Well, <clears throat> my sinner self, that's me, sees all of my neighbors, including my wife, as an annoyance. <laughs> or has something that I use or, or, or abuse to, that 
you're in my way. You are in my way, children, right? Um, all I want to do is this thing, but I'm, I, have to, I have to pick up after you, I have to drive you here, or whatever. It becomes that. But then there are moments I'm a saint, right? And I'm 100% at the same time. But there's moments when I'm a saint when I, it delights me so much to give up of my time and all of my money to my daughters or to my wife. And that's not a slave thing. That's who I want to be. And Christ, who I am. And am forever. Right? So as this gets played out in vocation, there is always the sinner saint there. My sinner sees my neighbor as an annoyance. The saint finds, finds the neighbor as a delight. Have you ever opened the door for somebody and it gave you great delight? As simple as that is, right? I mean, this is, this is what we're talking about here. Okay, so uh, vocation proper. God to Christ to neighbor. Now, the other thing we should talk about is uh, uh, masks of God. So I'm free to be a mask of God to my neighbor. Let's talk about masks of God for a little bit here. All right. So think about a Halloween mask a mask of God. God hides. Isaiah says, surely you are a God who hides. And I think God hides in a, in a variety of ways. I think he hides in nature, right? I can, I can see looking behind things that, that there is there's some, the invisible qualities of God, as, as, as St. Paul said in Romans, are, 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 are visible. The invisible is visible as I look. He's hiding in nature. The problem with nature is that I only find his power and, and vaguely there I don't find his, his love, right? I find his love also hidden at a cross, right? That's where he is the most hidden. But the paradox is where Christ is the most hidden, he is actually the most revealed. Uh, I'm, I am, I've never seen this movie, um, but, and even if you haven't, you know about Mrs. Doubtfire, correct? Yeah. Robin Williams' character hides as a maid to be close to his children after the divorce. God hides so that he can be close to you. Right? Because you, you, you would be blown away. Right? Moses has to go in the cleft of the rock in Mount Sinai and, and turn and only the backside of God comes and yet when he comes down, he's still bright, shining so brightly they have to put a veil over here. The, 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 full, the fullness of God would just blow you away. Right? That kind of idea. So he wears these masks with a very uh, uh, distinct purpose, and that is to be close to you. And I, I think um, he does that in, in church. So uh, Pastor Bader today, if you notice, didn't say, God forgives you. He said, I forgive you. You know, what, what is that all about? Well, in John chapter 20, when God sent all these disciples, he said, if you forgive any, anyone their sins, they are not. And so we play that out so that you don't, there's no degree of separation between you, the sinner, and the forgiveness of sins. You don't go away thinking, well, Pastor Bader said that God forgives me, but how do I really know? I know it's kind of a silly thing, but I forgive for that. You just mentioned to me that you did this. I forgive you. There's no... There's no degree of separation between the sinner and forgiveness of sins. Well, he, he hid, Christ hid under the mask of Pastor Bader at that moment. As he did bread and wine, as he does water. And that gets extended out in the world where, um, you know, 
when you grew up, you were, you were all, I assume, all good little boys and girls. And so when your mom or dad made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you said, thank you, mom or dad. And, and I assume you're all good little uh, Christian boys and girls. So you also said a little prayer thanking God for that same sandwich. What gives? Was it God or was it mom or dad who made you the sandwich? And the answer is yes. It was God hiding under the mask of mom and dad. Oh, and farmer and truck driver and grocery store owner and FDA inspector. For what reason? You not starving to death for that reason. <laughs> right? So God, he, he is going to serve you in a very intimate but hidden way. So God fed you and it wasn't like some God up here orchestrating things, but he fed you with the hand of the farmer and of mom and dad. He was just hiding behind that mask. Yeah. So God was intimate with you in a very real way. I think that's really profound when you think about that. In fact, I would call this a Christological endeavor. Uh, maybe take a step back and say, this is actually God's M.O. that he almost exclusively, not not exclusively, but almost exclusively, uses the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary or the extraordinary. Right? So, yes, yes, splitting the Red Sea. Yes, water into wine. Yes, all these things. But normally, he is going to use ordinary people to carry out his tasks. Right? And, and I think that's a lot of the stories both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he certainly carries out uh, extraordinary things through ordinary people today. I mean, just think about mothers for a second. Um, you know, we believe that that life uh, begins um, at conception. There's good biblical uh, reasons for that. I think good biological reasons for that, but that's a different story. Um, it's not like mom and dad get together and they provide the the body part, and then God's got a shelf of souls, and then he, he picks one and sends down a spiritual stork to put that soul into the body. But that mom and dad are a part of creating the whole human being, both body and soul. I, that's as far as I can explain it. But isn't that profound that particularly mothers are, uh, play a part in the act of creating something out of nothing? Right? A creative act. Just stop and think about that. That he, he honors that. Ordinary means he did something extraordinary. Right? This, is, this is really profound. So, um, we carry that out in vocation, this idea of the ordinary carrying out the extraordinary. And I, I like to think about vocation as a Christological endeavor. So, if, I, if I'm if you're tracking with me right now and you, and you maybe agree, okay, I could see that God uses people. And so um, um, when, when um, I am going to fly home today, it is Christ flying me home via the vocation of the pilot. And so that pilot is Christ to me. He's still the pilot, or she is still the pilot, but also the mask of God. This is Christ doing this. The pilot may mess it up, Right? But it's still, it's still Christ doing it. Yeah? All right. But then the flip side is also true. And we go to Matthew chapter 25 where we hear a, a description of the last day and Jesus separates the sheep and the goats. And um, he says to the sheep, great job. Um, and, and, 
and he says, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink, and when I was in prison, you visited me, and when I was naked, you clothed me. And the sheep are like, when, when, when were you naked? I don't even remember. What, what? We didn't do any of that. And Jesus answers, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So then, when I'm in my vocation, and I am serving, for instance, my students, I am serving the least of the brothers of Jesus. I'm serving Christ. So I am Christ to them, as Christ uses me to give them an education. And they are Christ to me as I serve Christ, the body of Christ. Christ to you, Christ to me. Now, doesn't this change the way you look at all of your neighbors and all of your neighbor relationships? That this is a Christological endeavor. Right? And that, and that we look at human dignity when we see people. Right? That I don't just see, I don't see, um, I don't start judging people, which of course is my way of self-justifying myself. Right? I, I got to tell you a story. So when we were in seminary, uh, we, had to, we all wear suit and coat, and coat and tie. We had briefcases. We looked ridiculous. And, um, and then we would all go to, since we had no uh, marketable skills at all, um, we would go work, you know, uh, grunt work somewhere, pretty much. Right? I was a painter, ballet parker, uh, odd jobs, landscape, whatever I could get my hands on. And so you go from a suit and tie to work boots, you know? every day. And if I was driving in the morning and I had my uh, suit coat on and I saw somebody with a, a pickup truck, you know, like with got, he's got his whole life in the back of the pickup, like he's got, all of his file cabinet is on his dashboard, you know that guy, right? Um, the guy that can fix anything but, um, but uh, and, except organize his life, right? And I just think they're self-justifying myself as I'm getting gas, like, should've stayed in school, buddy. Then later that, you know, later that week, I get to get gas, but now it's the afternoon, and I'm head to toe in dirt, and I see some jerk in a BMW with a three-piece suit. I go, that guy, that guy doesn't know a hard day's work if it bit him in the rear end. You know, I'm always trying to justify myself. But if I think vocationally, I look at the blue-collar worker, and I say, this is Christ doing work for me. And there's dignity in that. Um, in whatever job it is. And then for that person in, in, their, in their work, this is powerful to know that I'm doing God's work, even if the rest of the world doesn't, doesn't quite understand that. And why was I really even chasing after the mere adulations of man anyway? And, and I, I started thinking about cleaning my own toilet like there's the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it. And if I'm doing this for the health and, 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 and cleanliness for my, for my family, um, I can lose myself in the... And everything has a craft to it. Like, you know, those little plastic things that cover the bolts that hold the toilet down? How many times do you take that off and clean around there, right? You, know? um, you can do it the right way and take great pride. And know your kids are not going to even notice or thank you. And they're going to ruin the place in about five minutes. But you weren't doing it for the mere adulations of your children. How, how, you know, how shallow are you? <laughs> right? 
I mean, how shallow when parents say, you never say thank you to me, I could catch myself in that. Like, this, my whole world depends on, on a teenage girl saying that, that I did a good job. You know, I mean, how ridiculous I am, right? But at the same time, I know that God has called me to this, and this is important. And I'm doing God's work quite literally when I clean the toilet. And that gives a sense of pride, proper pride, and even craft and doing it the right way. Um, and that's when, that's, when, that's when life's good. When you start thinking of your job in, in a way of, of craft. And that's why I put said losing yourself. Have you ever lost yourself in a task? And the hours go by like, that's a good day. That's a good day, right? Okay, um, I'm running out of time here. Uh, let's, let's end with um, uh, Shalom real quick. I'll, I'll maybe give to both. Uh, shalom is a whole old concept uh, of peace, but really it's probably like human flourishing and happiness. Um, and it's akin to Greek concepts, but even the concept in our American way of thinking that we all have the pursuit, uh, we all have the right to the pursuit of happiness. That word happiness did not mean, when they wrote that down, did not mean a personal feeling or euphoria. It meant being a part of a civic society. And they didn't use that word, but they were, they were, they were scratching on this idea of vocation, right, that I can be a part of this. Um, the reason I put there love knows no program because um, we have this thing in our society where we talk about work-life balance. And um, I always chuckle at that. I'm like, those people who say that must have never had kids. I don't, you know, work-life balance, right? Like, uh, that just becomes almost sometimes one more law to you, right? I got to have this work-life balance. And then you feel guilty about going to work and you feel, feel, feel guilty when you're not working with your, with your children or whatever. I think a better way to say is who... Who needs the, my love the most? And you don't have to feel guilty about not going to every Little League game. Right? I got a calling. That's all right. But, of course, if you're, if you're only about work and, and you neglect your calling as mother or father, well, then you have permission from God to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to say no to this job. Or maybe, maybe it does cost you a promotion or whatever, but it doesn't matter. God has called you and it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine, right? And I think in the end, you end up with work-life balance by following the, the love rather than following a strict kind of schedule, like this is family time or whatever. I mean, you can get to that point. It's fine. But I just, I just feel like this is about love, and love doesn't have these kinds of boundaries, but we try to put boundaries on here. Like, here is how life is going to work, right? We, we, we tell the college kids all the time, like, you have to have a plan. It's a five-year plan. This is what you're going to do. We have to do that because they can't plan their way out of a Tuesday afternoon. But then I go, listen, this is, this is adorable <laughs> that you think you have the next five years planned out. You'll see. It'll be, it'll be fine, but don't worry. It'll be upended. I can guarantee you that. All right. <clears throat> Here's, I think, my, my, final, my final thing. Um, when, um, when people say uh, that God has a plan for them, that is a very beautiful biblical concept. Um, but I like to say this, God doesn't have a plan for you, he has a plan for your neighbor. And whatever it is, is your highest calling and your greatest honor. <clears throat> Many years ago, uh, I didn't hear the voice clearly spoken to me this way, but God said it via many different avenues. 
he said, Michael, there's this gal named Amanda. I want her to be adored. I want her to be um, encouraged. I want her to be loved unconditionally. And Mike, you idiot, you're going to do that for me. And I got married to this gal named Amanda. And it was really about God's love through me to her. To her. And, and when God said, Michael, you're my guy on the ground for that, that then became my highest honor. Became my highest honor. Same way when I became a father. Same way when I became a pastor and whatever. That this is my highest honor. Because I'm literally doing God's work. So whatever your vocations are, God is saying, you're my gal, you're, you're, you're my boots on the ground. I need you. I need you. And I want you to do this. And whatever it is, it is your highest honor. You're going to mess it up because we're sinful people. So what? Tomorrow's a new day. And God says, I need you for this. And it's a beautiful thing. And don't worry. Your relationship with me is already secure in the righteousness of Christ. Right? Uh, it's just all about God's love for you first, and then how he honors you by using you in the world is really a beautiful thing. I'm out of time, right? So uh, thanks, uh, thanks for putting up with me. Is that good? Yeah, I will, I will stick around for questions, though. Does anybody have any questions? There's more to the story, of course, uh, more than we can do in 45 minutes. But yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's talking about Psalm where, you know, I knit you in my mother's womb, you know, like a plan for you. I, I really like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10, right? First he says, you are saved by grace alone, not by works, so that no one can boast. He piles it up just so we're secure. No, we're all on the same page. You didn't do anything for salvation by grace alone. And then he goes to verse 10. He's not done with us. He says, you are Christ's workmanship and I prepared good deeds in advance for you to do. So I love saying that to the college students, like, God, your five-year plans. Ah, God knows, though, that 30 years from now, some of you are going to be putting an IV into a particular person, and, and some of you are going to be bored in boardrooms making decisions that affect millions, and some of you are going to be playing in three years' time, are going to be uh, creating lesson plans for second graders or whatever. And he's got a neighbor for you, and he's setting this up for you, this good deed in advance for you to accomplish. And what he's doing right now is he's forming you and preparing you, knitting you for that neighbor relationship you have no idea is down the road. That's your plan. That's your plan, right? That God is forming you for your neighbor. So God doesn't have a plan for you. He has a plan for your neighbor. Oh, by the way, he does have a plan for you. You just happen to be the neighbor in about a million other vocations where God is using them to serve you, right? And I think that's really profound. All right, anybody else? Anybody want the final word? <laughs> All right, that was quick, but it's good enough, Pastor Bader? Okay, you betcha. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, on this All Saints Day, we are reminded that you are in control of all things, that before the beginning of time, you knew us and you loved us, and then you honored us with work and all the saints who have gone before us. And even though that work may not be celebrated like it should in, in our world, we know that we are doing your work. And we can only do that because we are free, free from trying to please you. And so ultimately, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, 
who has made us righteous in your sight and freed us from the burden of trying to save ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for coming.